Remain standing and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I'll be reading a couple of spots in Philippians. If you have, are using the Bible in front of you uh, there in the pew, it's page 980. But Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people that he loves, and he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And if you turn another page over in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul continues, and he's closing this letter, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then one verse at the end as he wraps it up. He said, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. And let's pray. And Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that's already been ours to worship you, to hear what you're doing and how you are helping people uh, in our city. Lord, to be able to come in and sing about how great you are and to be thankful to you for what you've done for us, to be able to acknowledge that we are indeed uh, in our own selves, in our own strength, sinners in the hands of an angry God and in need of your forgiveness. And to know that Jesus is our Savior. To worship you in song. And now, Lord, to be able to open your word and look at it. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will teach us what we need to learn. That you'll convict us and remind us of what we already know. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit's power, be with us, we pray, during this portion of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard the phrase and used the phrase. A lot of us are going to, uh, on Thanksgiving, we'll have uh, what we call a feast. Uh, I think that's an Eve word, feast. I've heard her say that more than anybody in the last uh, few weeks. She, she likes our after-church dinners and, and refers to them as a feast. Heard the phrase, maybe, enough is as good as a feast. Uh, that was originally said, uh, I looked this up in the search engine, and somebody said it was a guy named Euripides. And he said, enough is as good as a feast. And his point in in making that phrase they said was, don't be greedy. I don't know about that. Uh, Sir Thomas Mallory said it, and he was attributed by more people than Euripides who said it. Uh, Enough is as good as a feast. And that was more in the context of be content. But most of us associate enough is as as good as a feast with Mary Poppins in the movie, right? She said that. And, uh, yeah, she did. <laughs> you didn't know that. Well, 
You might have to go back and watch the movie and see. And she said it with those uh, children, and she was encouraging them, and it was, an, I guess, just an English phrase that was handed down. And, and she said it more in a joyous way and in a matter-of-fact, practical way. And I think that's probably captured the way that, uh, that it was meant. Enough is as good as a feast. You don't have to overdo it. You don't have to long for something. You don't have to, to reach. Enough is as good as a feast, she said. Coming up on Thanksgiving, you may find yourself around a table. And there's a certain point at the table where everybody has to go around and say something they're thankful for. And uh, some, some people do that. I inserted in ours something you're thankful to God for. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I put qualifiers on it, like if the first person says husband or wife, or family or something, the next person has to come up with something original to them and they can't just all say the same thing. But then I realize I'm, I'm depriving people of, of saying publicly that they're thankful for their spouse, so I, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, but you're going to be thinking about what you're thankful for. Uh, you're going to be told, and maybe, maybe we don't even feel that thankful. Maybe we think other people are, or who are we thankful to? What's going on with this thanks stuff? So this morning, as we look at this text, I really, I don't want to be trite. I understand that many of us have gone through and are going through deep pain at this time. And sometimes this time of year is the hardest. I mentioned our sister, and that's, that's hard. It's a hard time of year. I don't want to give a bunch of cliches this morning, and I don't want you to hear what is said as cliches. We need something, though, as Christians, as we approach Thanksgiving season. It's not just the bridge from Halloween to Christmas and sell a bunch of of stuff. Try not to pretend that I've mastered this myself, because each one of us is a work in progress, this idea of Thanksgiving and being thankful, and to whom. I also, though, will not try to preach this text in such a way that it could be preached in any old house of worship or the Rotary Club or on some Hallmark movie because there's a ground for Christians to be thankful. There's something that we anchor ourselves in. It's not just a general feeling good or feeling lucky or feeling whatever it is, feeling like we got it better off than the next person. Uh, There's something for a Christian when we approach the idea of thanks and thanksgiving, even though it is a national holiday and not a church uh, holiday. You could really even say, like we say about Christmas and Easter, uh, every Sunday or every day for the Christian is Christmas and Easter, and every day is Thanksgiving Day. But when the world stops and pauses and has a time of thanksgiving and we do something a little special and different in our lives, uh, we need this text this morning. So as we dive into the word, I want you to be thinking about uh, thanksgiving, but a Christian thanksgiving. Where is the, what they would tell us in seminary, where is the Christological connection to thanksgiving? Be thinking about contentment. And thankfulness. Um, the book of Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote. Paul wrote it while he was in prison. If you're a young candidate in our denomination, at least, and you have to get uh, 
quiz before you can, and, and, and pass written exams, and you have to have some seminary and this and that, and then there's a time for an open uh, from the floor, and all these pastors can ask you questions. And you don't have to be perfect. There's some biggies that you better not miss. But they do want to know in a certain section of that your Bible knowledge and understanding. And somebody might say from the floor, what is the book of Philippians about? And if you say, well, it's about four pages, that's not the right answer. You could say it is the right answer, but it's not the answer they're looking for. Uh, what's Philippians about? Two words that just pop out and, and come through. If you look at it in, in, in the original language, joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing. Philippians is dripping with joy and rejoicing. Uh, there's such positive coming uh, from the pages of, uh, from the pen of Paul to this church in Philippi. Uh, it's hard to even imagine that he's writing that while he's in prison. He's writing that under, under guard. He's writing that under duress. He's writing that with a possible outcome, which did happen, of losing his life for the gospel. And yet he starts out saying, I am so thankful for you as a church. Every prayer I pray for you, I just can't help but be thankful for what God's doing in you. And he ends the letter with that, uh, where we're going to spend more of our time this morning, from chapter 4, where he says, uh, I know how to uh, be in plenty. I know how to be in great blessing. We give our wedding vows. One time with this one girl I had to change when I was going through the rehearsal, I had to change the wedding vows because she was all giddy with the excitement of the wedding and, and, and the, the vow that said in plenty and in want, and she was thinking of that good and plenty candy, and I don't know why that stuck in her brain, and she just couldn't stop laughing. So I changed, uh, I, I went back to the old ones about uh, in, in poverty and wealth uh, just to help her out. But in plenty and in want. We know our life is full of both of those things, and Paul is saying, I know how to be content. So three things about, and we're going to focus on that word contentment, but contentment and thankfulness and joy and happiness, these four are all intertwined in this text. And in the next few moments, we're going to think about contentment and thanksgiving and joy and happiness. Uh, I, I, I believe that, that your two basic building blocks are joy and you get joy, that leads to happiness. You have contentment with where you're at, whatever the situation is, that will lead to thanksgiving. But they're intertwined. There's an undercurrent throughout these four little chapters. It is possible to have joy 24-7 without always being hap-hap-happy. Right? But I would say this, the emotion of happiness can exist but is shallow and fleeting without joy. Joy can operate in every climate. If you've been around churches enough, you might have heard a sermon somewhere along the way. Or if your name is is Annabelle and you go to a school, your teacher might have told you, because Annabelle told us in Sunday school last week, she already knew this. I was telling the kids this. And I said, joy, Jesus and others... And you, 
And there was a song they used to make us sing back in my Sunday school, back in the Baptist church in Iowa. Jesus and others in you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others in you. In the life of each girl and each boy. J is for Jesus who died in your place. O is for others you meet face to face. Y is for you in whatever you do. Put yourself last and spell joy. And Annie wrote it all out for me, and that was nice. Uh, we understand joy is the basis, and we live a life of joy. Happiness just kind of surprises us and comes along. If we try for happiness without the joy, we're in trouble. And I would say if we try for Thanksgiving uh, one season a year without contentment, we're likewise in trouble. Contentment. Paul said, I've learned to be content. Contentment is the undercurrent then that feeds the emotion of thankfulness. Someone says, well, Thanksgiving, that's just a secular observance. It's a national holiday. Everyone's going to talk about being thankful, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're really thankful or not. We've got to understand Christians' contentment. How can somebody be content? How can we be content? How can we be thankful and not restless for more or resentful because we don't have as much as somebody else? Being content, by the way, is a command from God to Christians. God says, be content. That's a command. Say, well, it's all on you, God. And you know what? As as Presbyterians, we go, man, how much is God? How much is us? Uh, Bible talks about uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. But there is a command to Christians to be content. 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Luke 3.14, the Roman soldiers came to get baptized. Remember, John the Baptist was out there, and he was preparing the way for Jesus to come. Uh, Jesus is the one who was going to be the Lamb of God who took away people's sins. And John was saying that, but people's hearts, the Holy Spirit was working through John, and people were starting to look at their lives and say, man, I'm not, I'm not doing so good. I need to repent. And the baptisms that John was giving out by the river were baptisms. They were symbolic washings. They weren't like our church baptisms now. Uh, They were symbolic washings. uh, The outside, the sin being washed away. People saying, my hearts are ready. That's why when Jesus got baptized, even as a uh, non-sinner, Jesus came and and, and because he would would, uh, take our sins upon him on the cross... He identified with the people and took that symbolic washing even though he was the only one that's ever lived that didn't have to do anything like that. And John is out there and some Roman soldiers asked him, well, what shall we do now that we are convicted of our sin? He didn't say quit the Roman army. He said this, uh, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. That's what you do. You be content. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, 
hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Timothy 6.8, Paul writes a letter to a young pastor. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Hebrews 13.5, the writer there uh, tells the Christians, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I'm telling you that a commandment to Christians is to be content. Wouldn't be commanded if it wasn't possible. Uh, We're not always that way when we're uh, malcontents or discontented or, or those things. We can confess that and be forgiven. But contentment is the way that God in our life as we walk toward heaven, that's what he has saved us for. That's part of the good works is just the contentment. And I'm saying contentment then leads to the thankfulness. Paul says, I've learned how to be content. He identifies as the chief of sinners. He's not saying, I'm better than you. I've done all this stuff. But he says, even as one who is a sinner in need of a savior, I've learned in my walk with God how to be content. Now, we use that word, uh, that, that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We use that for a lot of things. I can get this term paper written through Christ who strengthens me. I can run that marathon. I can have that hard conversation with that neighbor. And you know what? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But I want to remind us that the original content, uh, uh, the original context of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me has to do with material possessions and either having them or not having them. And that's the original context. And, and you want to look at scriptures and, and make that application to broader things? Uh, that, that's, that, that's you and, and your study and all that stuff. But originally it was about how we deal with our possessions. And boy, it is hard sometimes. It's hard to, to not have much. It's hard to be brought low or abased, as, he, as, as the scripture says. But he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to be brought high in the realm of possessions. I've learned that whatever situation I'm in, I can be content. Contentment is a learned trait that is developed as we walk through this life with the Holy Spirit. It's part of that practical sanctification that is the Christian life. And we come to learn that it does not depend on outward circumstances. Now, funny story, I worked down in college at this place called Abeka Books. And some of you guys use some of the Abeka Books for some of your schooling stuff and all that stuff. But they were printing Bibles down there, Old King James Bibles. And, you know, they got about six verses wrong just with the typist. So if you, if you want to talk about English translations, and, there was, and we had to go when I worked there. One day I walked in and I had this big old box of stickers and I had a stack of Bibles. I wanted to just like swear on them. By the end of the day, I felt like swearing because I, we had to take all these little stickers and cover up the verses that were wrong. And I forgot what the others were, but the Bible that they printed accidentally said, godliness with contentment is great pain. Not godliness with contentment is great gain. And I memorized that verse that day, I tell you, uh, trying to get that little sticker in there. And it was a great pain to learn that godliness with contentment was great gain. 
But there's something about contentment that, that is there. It's a great gain. It's learned. It's developed as we go along, as we walk with Christ. Contentment, a practiced trait. Paul says, listen, like the old Frank Sinatra song where it says, uh, that's life. You're riding high in April. You're shot down in May. That's life. Um, Paul says, listen, I know personally what it's like to be abased, and I know what it's like to abound. So I read this book this week. Uh, The original book was by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs, lived in the 1600s. I think he was born in the 1500s, and he he, uh, started writing his stuff around 1627. A great old Puritan book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. But then he wrote an appendix for it, It was a little shorter, so that's the one I read. And that specifically dealt with being brought high because Burroughs in his own life was low, and then he was was, uh, finally at a point where he could afford uh, to live in London and to be the pastor. Um, But he talked in in this part I read, the contentment, prosperity, and God's glory. He talked about Paul and Paul being brought low. And he said this. He said, when Paul says... I know how, he means that he knows how to rightly judge his abasement. Being brought low to being on hard times. Uh, we used to eat down in Pensacola at a, a restaurant called Po Folks, and that was their stick. And, and you, got, you drank out of a, a mason jar, and, and they had just good old southern food that Po Folks used to eat. And, and, and you could buy a T-shirt if you were there. It said, I'm Po, but I'm proud. And we would eat at Po Folks. Uh, Sometimes people can't handle being po' folks. It's hard to be abased. It's hard to have circumstance come around. And we live our whole lives trying to do anything to keep from being brought down. But circumstances, uh, we, we have no idea what's to come. He says, when Paul says, I know how to be abased, he means he knows how to rightly judge his abasement. He knows not to look at it as a repulsive thing, as carnal hearts would do, but to see honor in his abasement. If I know how to be abased, then that means I know how to interpret God's intention for my abasement differently than the world does. I know how to bear it with a quiet spirit. I know how to satisfy my heart in the midst of it. I know how to improve my abasement for the glory of God, and for the spiritual good of my own soul as well as that of others. I know how to exercise faith and other graces in the midst of it. I know how to get the sting out of it. I know how to remove the venom from it. I know how to carry myself in a gracious, comfortable, and heavenly manner in the midst of my abasement. Although the world may put dishonor upon me, I shall not dishonor myself or my cause by any unseemly behavior. It appears that Paul did indeed know how to do this, for his gracious character while he was chained in bonds actually helped further the conversion of many, including some from Caesar's court. He goes on to say, God has used my imprisonment, my nothing. I'm just a prisoner. I'm just number, you know, 627726. I'm not Paul anymore, but God has helped me in my imprisonment, in my hard times, to be able 
to have such a dignity about that and to see the perspective of that, that now I get to share the faith with people even from Caesar's household. We pray for the persecuted church around the world, and what Voice of the Martyrs tells us is this. Don't just pray for those being persecuted. Pray for the persecutors as they see what's happening to them and they see their godly response. Many of these people look at it and they come to the Lord. I know how to be abased. He says, I know how to abound. I know how to arrive. I think this is the hardest part. I think it's harder to be well off than it is to be flat broke. Harder to be godly in that circumstance. Uh, To be from rags to riches. And to say, God did this, not me. God has a purpose for this, not me. Some people are bad losers. Some people are very bad winners. Right? Some people can be a very bad winner. I was telling my chess partner about this the other day. I was uh, playing chess in college. And for whatever reason, I was in the zone. And I was setting them up, and I was knocking them down. And they all wanted to play the winner. There was no money or anything like that. I was just playing chess. And I was there. I thought I was Bobby Fischer, and I was winning. And this guy that I was beating, Mark Smith, I really looked up to him because he was tall, but I also looked up to him for his character. And Mark Smith said to me, he said, David, I wish you could see yourself right now. You're so cocky. You're so cocky. I wish you could just see yourself. Oh, I wish you could see yourself. And he kept saying that over and over again. And I even took that. That that even elevated me. And so the next guy sits down. And do you know that that next game I lost in two moves? And you can't do that in chess except by accident. I'd never seen, I didn't even know it was possible. But I thought, I'm so good. I'm on a roll. I'm, you know, all that stuff. And two moves. And the guy just moves his bishop out and calls check. And all of a sudden, That's checkmate, two moves. And that hurt, and that's what I needed, but what was worse was the delight that everybody had in that. Uh, Bad winners need to be abased sometimes. God's hand was on those chess pieces as sure as mine were, and I needed that. You think about what it's like to be up and think you're so good, and then to be down, and how do you handle that? And down and up. And Paul is saying, listen, Christian, there's a way that you can, with your relationship with God, and we're going to get to that in just a minute, the way that no matter if times are good or times are bad, you are content with what you have. You think about, those lyrics came to me as I was thinking about this portion of the sermon, that man that said, once upon a time, you dressed so fine, you threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People called and said, beware a doll, you're bound to fall. You said they were just kidding you. And then he says, you used to laugh about all these people, but now that's you. And now they're exchanging their gold, they're exchanging their precious gifts, and you got nothing. Just take your diamond ring and pawn it. How does it feel? And Christians, we go through these types of things where we're up and we're down in life. That's called life till we get to heaven. But how do we handle? How do we especially handle when things are going good? And I know that we think that maybe things aren't going so good for us, but compared to 
what, 95% of the world? Compared to 95% of the people that have lived in history, we live like kings and queens. How do we do this? How do we say enough is as good as a feast? How do we reject the world's perspective on everything, including material goods, uh, to, to love the things God gives us? to use the things, to enjoy them, to say every good gift and perfect gift comes from God, to not renounce uh, possessions that God gives us as gifts. But how do we keep that in perspective? We've got a world that's trying to make us fall because that's just what it does. The seven deadly sins. I heard this. This is funny. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying get rid of all this. This was just funny. And I, I have some of these things too. But they, some guy compared, or some woman, whoever it was, some writer, compared the seven deadly sins. And they looked at, at current apps that are out there in the world. And they compared, they said uh, pride. They equated that with LinkedIn. <laughs> Greed, Amazon. <laughs> Gluttony, Uber Eats. Lust, and I didn't know what this one was. I guess it's a good thing. Tinder. Wrath, Facebook. (laughs) Envy, Instagram. Sloth, Netflix. (laughs) Not that any of those are bad things to have and do, but understand that there is a world and there are things like that and things that are triggering us to fall. How do we handle in a world as Christians? How How do we live as Christians? And particularly, how do we live lives that are full, to say enough is as good as a feast. My life is full. Satisfied with what God gives us. Saying what God gives us is enough. Uh, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Uh, the, the writer of Proverbs says, in a prayer to God, he says, God, two things I'm asking of you. Deny them not to me before I die. The first one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. But the second one, he says this, and this is a good prayer for all of us. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God, give me just enough and let me see it for what it is, a feast. Um, Burroughs quickly wrapping this up, making some applications to us, uh, learning to be full. And we'll just roll through these. Uh, One, learning to be full. You learn to be full when you set a suitable price on your fullness. Uh, What did he mean by that? Count your material blessings and realize that God has given them to you for his good purpose. A person may have good things. Uh, God showed Job, after Job went through all of his... uh, Terrible times, what did God do for him? See, he didn't really need all that stuff anyway. No, God gave him double. We cannot say that having possessions and being rich is a sin. It's what you do with it. We can't say that being poor is a sin. It's what you do with it. Your your circumstances are given by the Lord. So we're not trying to make a political statement here. We're just saying all things are from God. Whatever God gives you, have the right perspective. As Burroughs said, Set a suitable price on your fullness. A person may have good things, but they may not be good for you. God gave you good things for good, not to drag you down after puffing you up. He said this, an ornate calligraphic letter, a letter calligraphy in a word, adds no more meaning to the word than any other letter. 
just because it's written fancy. Uh, in fancy letters, the word is the same. I write chair, and I write it really fancy. Or I print it out, still a chair. Right? Neither does the enjoyment of fancy material things make a man the better for it. Your character is not better or, or, or worse. You're still person. You're still need of God, whether you're surrounded with fancy things or fancy titles or not. Paul Overstreet wrote a song back in the 90s, country song, called The Richest Man on Earth. And the verse goes like this. He says, we've got a roof over our heads, and the kids have all been fed, and the woman I love most lies close beside me in our bed. Lord, give me the eyes to see exactly what it's worth. Then I would be the richest man on earth. And you think about that. Second thing he said about learning to be full. You learn to be full when you can discern the best use of what you have. That is, when you can tell how best to distribute the fullness God gives you. It's not enough to say that just because a man's drink is his own, therefore he ought to drink as much as he pleases, or because his meat is his own, therefore he should eat as much as he will and not know how to order himself and be moderate, or because his estate is his own, therefore he should spend it as he likes in an excessive way. Just because you have it doesn't mean you need to consume it all on yourself. He said it would be like a cook in the kitchen opening the pantry and, and, and he says, hey, who ordered all this salt? Well, we've got all the salt. Let's use the salt and just dump salt all over the recipe. That can ruin things. It's a use and an understanding. God gives you things, gives you a house, gives you a car, gives you some clothes, gives you some food, gives you some possessions, gives you some uh, toys, whatever, some, some things. God gives that to you. You still have to say, how do I use these properly and not to my own destruction. Third, you learn to be full when you avoid the temptations that go along with the comforts you've received. Just because you have 500 channels doesn't, and and great for you, good, good to have that. Not a sin, not talking about that. Uh, Can be a sin, if you think it is for you, then, then don't have any. But if you have 500 channels, good. Doesn't mean that some of them aren't there for your destruction. Four, you learn to be full when you keep under your command everything you enjoy and when you retain command over your spirit and what you enjoy. What he's saying here is your possessions work for you, not you working for your possessions. Okay, I like this one. Okay, principle. All truth is God's truth. Even if it doesn't come from a a born-again Christian believer. Uh, People say truth all the time. The donkey said truth. Uh, Jesus said the rocks will say truth. Uh, Things say truth. I I have no idea where she stands. Maybe she's a a sister in Christ. But I I benefited from reading that Marie Kondo. I read her before she got famous. You know what she said? And she said some weird things in that book, like when you get home at night, women, empty your pocketbook and say thank you, pocketbook, for working so hard for me today. And let that pocketbook rest from those things. Uh, When you get home... uh, Okay, that's, that's not really, I can't find a biblical basis for that. But you know what? The principle of your possessions work for you, not you for them, that's biblical. 
They work for you. That car is, why, why are you working so hard for that car? Let that car work for you. Get you someplace, point A to point B. All the good things in your life work for you and you work for God. Fifth, you learn to be full when you can use the gifts of God and yet remain ready to part with all of your comforts if God calls for them. Uh, God gives you things. God takes things away. Seventh grade. Uh, Steve Plate was in eighth grade. Laura Plate was in seventh grade. Steve and Laura were out on the farm. Their dad died in a farming accident. I'm sitting there. First time that somebody that was really close to me had somebody like a father who died. And I was, I was starting to see the impact, and I saw Laura over there crying a lot. And it was hitting me. And the, the family issued a statement. And I had never heard this Bible verse before, even though I grew up in a home with Bible all over. And that Bible verse, or maybe I'd heard it, it didn't mean anything. But they quoted from Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was impacting to see how Christians responded in a time of grief. I was at a conference once, and the man said, put your hands together like this. So we're all putting our hands together like this, looking, you know, feeling kind of dumb, like this, what's he going to say? When can I stop? But uh, we had our hands together. He said, this has got to be your posture through life regarding your possessions. You keep your hands open so God can put things in, and you keep your hands open so God can take them and distribute them how he wants. Your stuff is not really your stuff. It's just you being a steward of it, and it's God deciding to give or take away. Uh, You get that, Burroughs says, and you're going to be better with your contentment. You can learn how to be full. A couple more. Learn to be full when you can make all your fullness to further grow in grace, to use the things that God has given you, even if only temporarily to exercise grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Nothing wrong with having things. God wants to give you things. And you don't steal to get them. And God just gives you things. And it's a, a part of a... But maybe those things can, can be detrimental to you. And maybe they can be used to build somebody else up. They're all lawful. I'm not going to judge you. Don't you judge me uh, for things. But let's understand all of us that all things are lawful but they're not necessary not necessarily necessary seven you learn to be full when the fullness leads you to the source of your fullness when you are led to god when you look at the things and you say i don't deserve this we bought this church when we first came in and, and uh, people are like man how did you guys church plant and get that church? Boy, that, that, how, I'm like, we're just such dumb, dumb yokels that God had to help us because we weren't smart enough to go out and find a deal and get a deal. God just used the wonderful people at the Baptist church who were going to close their doors after a wonderful ministry to, 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 to let us carry on the ministry here. Um, you realize God's the blesser. It's not your smarts that blessed you. God's the one who gives the blessings. I told a parent one time, a couple parents back in my youth pastor days, and they were so concerned about their child. And I said, can you pray for her that God will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring her to him? And they're like, 
they thought immediately, probably like what we all think. <laughs> Can I pray for God to put her in a bad accident and make her a quadriplegic? Like, I don't know if I can do that. I said, listen, whatever it takes, we, we could also be saying God to bless her beyond, uh, beyond doubt and show her that it's his blessing and, and, and draw her to him that way. Uh, take your possessions and, and let your possessions, if God's given you possessions in a situation, take them and say, wow, God, I'm not only content, now I'm thankful. Last, you learn to be full when your things lead you to know your own heart in relation to God. The spiritual gift for Christians is forgiveness of sins. That's the best gift that Christians have. If you're not a Christian, you don't, you don't know what we're talking about. But if you're a Christian, to be forgiven and set free, to, to quote a book, to be forgiven and set free uh, of your sins and your burdens and the stuff we carry around, that's a gift from God. To say, let that gift from God lead me to God. To say, Jesus died bearing the wrath of God in our our place. Uh, You were called. And what do you do with a possession like that? What a possession. How many people in the world wish they could be forgiven unconditionally by the God of the universe? And you have been if you're a Christian. What do you do with that gift? Galatians 5, 13 and 14. This is wrapping it up. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you've been forgiven and set free, and you don't have the, the burdens of, of, of the world on you, and you know that, that, that whatever it is you've done, and you've repented of that sin, you've asked, you put your faith in Jesus, and he's forgiven you, you are free to help others. You've got the oxygen mask on yourself. Now you can apply it to the person next to you. That's what that means. Take that gift of of being forgiven and help others, the Bible reminds us to do. So Thanksgiving is coming. What are you thankful for? Here's the assignment. The assignment is don't wait till Thanksgiving. The assignment is even to go home and just look around. Look at that little thing that's a memory of grandma. Look at that thing that's kind of valuable and going up in price that you picked up at a yard sale and you feel pretty smart about. Look at those things. Look at that thing. Look at this. Look at that. Evaluate all those possessions and all those things. And, and, and don't, don't feel guilty about if God's given them to you. But put them in perspective and say, God, help me with my contentment, which will lead to my thankfulness. Let's go and, and, and look at our greatest possession there, our reminder that we get every week of the salvation Jesus gave us. Let's pray first. Lord, thank you for the salvation you've given us through Jesus, the greatest gift. We know that you have told us if you gave us Jesus Christ, will you not freely give us all things? And we thank you for all the other stuff you've given to us, the material and, and emotional and spiritual and relational, but we thank you for the number one the one that started it. And that's the gift you've given us of salvation and right relationship with you through Jesus. Lord, thank you for this table that brings us back and reminds us of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.